from Kirkco Media. This is medicine we're still practicing during a pandemic. I'm Bill Curtis. With us through the wonders of remote telephony, my co-host, quadruple board certified doctor in internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, my very good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. Nice to be here. You know, Dr. Steve has been working 15-hour days running the ICU at Providence Medical Center, and it sure is reassuring knowing we've got someone like Steve on the front lines of this battle every day. Thank you for making time for this today, and thank you for devoting yourself to that cause. It's my pleasure. Our guest today is zooming in from Ground Zero in New York City. Dr. Varinder Singh is chairman of cardiovascular medicine at the Lenox Hill Hospital Group in New York. He's secretary of the Lenox Hill Medical Board, and he's an assistant professor of cardiology at the Zucker School of Medicine and senior vice president of cardiology in the Western region for all of the Northwell Health Group, which is the corporate entity for 23 hospitals, including Lenox Hill. I'm sure that I'm missing something, but thank you so much for joining us today, Varinder. Thank you very much for having me on. One of the things that I feel like we should cover now, Dr. Singh, is that you have kind of a a unique perspective on this disease, both from the treatment side as well as uh, your own personal experience. Can you tell us a little about that? I contracted COVID in the middle of March. I had it uh, for two weeks. You know, I I have to tell you that um, two things work with this disease. They really do. Isolation works, right? Stay isolated. And the other thing that works is PPE. Uh, when we're looking at our uh, conversion rates for our doctors and our frontline workers, uh, appropriate use of PPE, well used, we have a less than 6% conversion rate, but we still have a 6% conversion rate. And I think I'm pretty sure that's probably what happened to me being on the front lines. Uh, and I kind of look at my COVID illness, I look at all COVID illnesses as either you're really sick or you're not that sick, right? It's like a defined line. Um, and, and if you survive it, I categorize you in the, you weren't that sick, uh, cause I've seen enough. And I think Steve has probably seen enough to know that people that really do get sick with this don't do well. Were, were you one of the guys that just had, uh, hardly anything as far as symptoms are concerned, or did you have some serious symptoms? I woke up on a Tuesday, a Tuesday night. I felt a little headache, uh, and that's one of the known presenting symptoms of it. Um, again, I didn't think anything of it. I just was like, all right, you know, I've been working a lot, doing a lot of the frontline shifts. I'm under a lot of strain, physical and emotional. And I woke up, uh, the next morning It was a Wednesday morning and I felt viral, right? My eyes were puffy. They were watery. Um, and I had congestion and I knew enough that I should not go to work. I assumed I was positive. I went and got tested. They did a chest x-ray, did the blood work, and all emergency rooms right now, and this is something that the, the public should know, you know, we are COVID contained. And our pathways for evaluation in American healthcare right now are done scientifically. They're done through epidemiology so that you are actually at a low risk of getting COVID seeking medical care. And that is very, very important because I think a lot of people believe, oh my God, all those patients are in that building. And if I walk in there, that's where I'm actually going to get it. And that's not true. So I did what everybody should be doing is I went to the emergency room. They had a whole pathway. They screened me before I even got really in the building. 
put me in a pathway which was the viral evaluation pathway. Um, got tested, got chest x-rays, saturations, um, you know, it was positive and we felt like I could manage myself at home. I, I can tell you that about four or five days into it, I could not remember what I had done five minutes ago. So this is important because we clearly know that the five to eight day window from the original diagnosis is a critical period of time. Steve, you've seen this, I've seen this, people are doing much better, much better. And then they suddenly that, they crash. Boom, bang, the inflammatory response. And so I actually got into an argument one week into it with my employee health director from, the, from my home, self-isolated, saying I'm ready to come back to work. And she was like, no, you're not. I'm not clearing. And I said, it's been a week. I have 72 hours, no fever, no cough. I want to come back to work. She was like, no. Okay. She was great. An hour after that phone call, it came back on me. And it came back on me much, much worse than it did the first time. And I wound up in the ER the next day, uh, severely dehydrated. I've never been dehydrated in my life. They gave me fluid bag after fluid bag, and I just was like, I need another one. You know, where my own body was saying to me, you need more of this. Um, Listen, you always become a better doctor when you're a patient. You learn more empathy. You learn what's going on in somebody's head. That's fear. It's anxiety. It's the same questions I had, the same thoughts of like, wow, I still got a big run left in me. I'm not ready to go yet. I mean, all the things that every one of us thinks about ourselves, they think about. And it makes you more empathetic and compassionate. Tell us a little of how it makes you feel as doctors in the middle of this thing, as you see us opening up with a higher base of infected people than we had even when we locked down in the first place. I don't think we've, we've been hit nearly as hard as New York has. I'm actually very concerned, embracing for major impact and very frustrated with the concept that people feel that it's okay to start opening businesses and reassimilate into society. The higher density of the virus, I think, makes May much more dangerous than it was in February. The fact that people uh, have basically had enough with social distancing and masking and their frustration, which will cause them to be even more lax than maybe they were before. Um, I think creates a potentially very dangerous set of circumstances. And I think our hospitals will have a, a huge surge like we had initially, but now with a base of patients who already have the disease. But now if you're going to add a sudden peak to that, we are going to feel that pressure. Healthcare professionals will be at risk and patients will, will not be able to get the services that they need. And that's at our level in Los Angeles. So what, how do you feel, Dr. Singh? I can't imagine the pressure that you guys are under right now. At one point, we had over 440 patients in the hospital. We would like to think that what we learned early on and disseminated nationally and internationally uh, helped you guys. Uh, you know, we, I know that I was on multiple chat groups that first week uh, with physicians all over the East Coast, physicians in the Midwest, physicians in the uh, West Coast, and we've still kept those going. Those first six weeks of this were awful. Were you subject to some of the shortages that we all saw on the Cuomo press conferences? We knew we were at 
just enough levels. And so every day you would wake up and you'd come in and you'd say, how many people are under investigation in the emergency room? How many people came in? And it was just every day, more and more and more. And then we were scrambling to get stuff. We had uh, people donating PPE. We had people uh, donating whatever they could do to, to help us get what we needed to get through. It was overwhelming and it still remains overwhelming you know uh, steve you've seen this when they first started coming in the people that we were discharging home right because we were filled and so we were trying to triage people to stay at home and call them to see how they were doing and we all talk about it you know some 55 year old guy who comes in with a bilateral pneumonia and has a po2 set of 94 in the pre-covid era 100% would have gotten admitted, right? Just for his own medical health. And just because we were scrambling and we did an amazing job of like built, making beds every night, every night, every day, we made more beds. But we would try and manage a lot of those patients at home, call them and follow them and make sure that they were doing okay. Um, just doing that early on was, you realize that we were into something that we'd never done before. Can I ask you how many ventilators you have at, at Lenox Hill? I don't know the exact number, but I can get it for you. You know, it's interesting. Everyone talks about, do you have enough ventilators? We have capacity of 100 ventilators. But I always say, and who is going to run 100 ventilators? The, the, the rate limiting step on that is not the number of ventilators, at least in, in our institutions. We have an ICU team of seven people. We could expand that ever so slightly. Are we then going to say seven doctors are going to be running 100 ventilators not to mention all the other consults on the floor. I don't know how big your team was, Dr. Singh, at Lenox Hill, but you had 400 in-house. You said half were critically ill. What kind of staff did you have to cover that kind of volume? So we, you know, we had three levels of care. We had a, a, a regional floor, then stepping up to a tele-COVID floor, and then the ICU. So sick, pretty sick and then really, really sick. So that's kind of how we broke them up. We had, just to get back to your point, your question, we have 74 ventilators on site right now. And Steve's absolutely right. We thought ventilator, 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 let's get ventilators. It, we learned quickly that you don't want ventilators, right? You need them to support people, but you want to try and keep people off of the ventilator as much as you can. Because being on a ventilator was, you may not have gotten off of the ventilator that's when you were really, really, really sick. So all of the things that you guys are doing that we were doing, you know, it was absolutely amazing to see how many people we could just keep off of the ventilator from doing things that simple, proning them, putting them on their belly, putting high flow masks on them. That's what we tried to do early on. And that's what we're still trying to do, keep them off of the vent. And the weird thing is that it was learn as you go, because initially the idea was let's not do, you know, heated high flow um, because that's going to increase aerosolization. And so you go from droplet to aerosol precautions, so it puts a higher risk for your healthcare staff. So the initial recommendation was, well, let's intubate these people early, because otherwise, you, you know, they're going to be coughing, they're going to be on high flow, just put them on a vent. And then what we're finding is the people on the vents not doing so well, best to keep them off the vent if you can. And so we've done a 180 when it's come to intubation. Let's dive into Verinder's specialty for a minute, because one of the things that is pretty clear by what we hear out in the press is that people with heart disease have a much higher risk of developing a serious illness from COVID. Dr. Singh, why is that? 
So clearly, if you have underlying heart disease, if you had underlying lung disease and you got COVID and you got a bad case of it, you just did not do well. I think it's because people who were who had underlying disease had less reserve. The virus in turn had some effects on the heart muscle itself uh, in some patients where it caused a direct myocarditis from the inflammatory uh, reaction. People who had heart failure, any heart failure, whether it was the type of heart failure where your heart muscle is not weakened, but it's just squeezing fine, but is stiff. Any history of heart failure and you got COVID, you did not do well. They also say that having high blood pressure leads to a more serious COVID illness. Having long-standing hypertension can make your heart more stiff, right? It's, it, it, so a heart does two things. It squeezes, and then it needs to relax to let more blood in. Uh, people that have uh, hypertension oftentimes have no problem squeezing and getting blood out of their heart, but then their heart cavity gets stiff and so that they can't relax it as much and open it. That's known as diastolic heart failure. Uh, people that had hypertension were more likely to have uh, diastolic heart failure and people who had heart failure uh, had a much worse outcome with their COVID infections. The susceptibility issue, certainly with diabetics and people with connective tissue diseases like lupus, they have a suppressed immune system. So they have an increased likelihood of contracting the disease to begin with. Then on top of that, this, what we call the comorbidities, where they already have underlying heart failure and limited reserve, as Dr. Singh was referring to, will then not only have an increased likelihood of contracting the disease, but you also have a much greater likelihood of doing poorly once you get the disease. So it's kind of a double hit phenomenon. On that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hello out there. (laughs) This is Jenny Curtis. I am a podcast producer at Kurtco Media, and I am currently sitting alone in a very empty podcast studio surrounded by hand sanitizer. (laughs) And I'm recording this in an effort to reach out. It's not an easy time right now. We don't know what the day-to-day is going to look like for the next few weeks, even months. So I'm proposing something. Let's all make something together. Kurtco Media has launched a podcast called A Moment of Your Time. These are bite-sized episodes, and each one features you out there. Go to kurtco.com slash a moment of your time for more information. We may have to stay apart, but let's create together. We're back with Dr. Varinda Singh and Dr. Stephen Tabak talking about some of the uh, some of the effects of COVID and what we're doing about it. So, Dr. Singh, when someone's in the hospital and they're a COVID patient and they're positive and uh, perhaps they're in the ICU and they're there because their heart condition has led to a more serious illness with COVID, do you get called in on such cases? Or are they really just being treated for COVID at that point? Yeah, that's a, actually a very good uh, question and a very good point. I think um, COVID was the the leading diagnosis. COVID was what we were treating one, two, and three. 
the patients that did develop a myocarditis, we might have gotten called in to see if we could do a support device or even consider ECMO or LVAD, some of these advanced support devices. The good news is it, it was very few patients that required that. Uh, the bad news was that if you have to go down that pathway, you were not going to do well. It was really COVID. That's what we were treating, COVID lung support, oxygenation. Have you changed your strategy at all relative to cardiac illness when, when COVID is involved versus some other maybe viral myocarditis or viral cardiomyopathy or other forms of cardiomyopathy? Has your, have your strategies changed? What have you learned so far? So we've learned um, from the cardiac effects of COVID, there were like three buckets, right? So some patients leak troponin. And troponin is the first marker for damage to your heart muscle. Uh, oftentimes when people are having heart attacks, uh, that's one of the markers that will see, start to show up in the blood. Um, troponins were elevated in COVID-positive patients. The second group of patients was really this group of patients, uh, which we learned very early on, their EKGs looked like an acute heart attack, looked like ST elevations. And we would take them to the lab and people were taking them to the cath lab doing angiograms and there was no significant obstruction. So there was this EKG evidence of a heart attack. We went down to our normal pathways. There's going to be a blocked artery. We're going to open it. And we would notice that there wasn't any major blockages. And then the third bucket is the most severe bucket, the one that I just uh, alluded to, when people had a direct myocarditis from it, you know, direct myocarditis in the setting of a critically ill patient multi-system failure, as you know, Steve, those patients don't do well, whether it's the flu or COVID or RSV or any other systemic viral illness. You know, we've, we've realized that there's a hypercoagulability. There's a high tendency of blood clotting uh, with COVID patients. Have you been able to correlate those changes in the ST segments and those that look like a possible uh, myocardial infarction uh, to those patients who also were hypercoagulable, or is there not really a relationship there? We saw it too, right? This whole idea where we were seeing patients developing DVTs, and then we were seeing the strokes, right? People were starting to have uh, some strokes and uh, uh, even some coronary thromboses. So we also recognized that there was something hypercoagulable going on here. So when we took these people to the cath lab, we were sure that we were going to see a thrombus, a thrombotic lesion in the Prox LED, and we didn't. Right. But especially, I think the multi-system organ failure, you know, more than any other disease that I have seen thus far, seems to be uh, in part related to this hypercoagulable process. We've, we've had people actually who you think are turning the corner from the respiratory standpoint. You're thinking, oh, you know what, this person is actually may actually come through because like you say, life and death sort of depends on the lungs for most of these patients. And if your lungs survive, the patient will survive. And yet next thing you know, the patient is showered with, you know, multiple cerebral infarcts, yeah. you know, and, uh, or they suddenly go into this cardiomyopathy that, that, that does them in. Or they have a massive PE. I mean, we saw that people were doing great, doing great. And then boom, massive PE. Right. So it's, you're always, you're more fragile than you think under these circumstances, and you can easily get lulled into the sense of security that, you know, they seem to be coming off the ventilator, oxygenation seems to be better, and then you get this other, this, you know, the second hit of thrombotic events. It's fascinating, terrifying, and yeah. it, it, you feel, you know, it's so funny. Eventually, I'm sure they will look back, as we look back now on the bubonic plague, 
and say, oh my God, all they needed was a little penicillin and, you know, uh, Yersinia pestis is gone. I mean, this disease is over with, you know, and look at the millions of people who died. And I'm sure at some point in time, uh, our technology will catch up uh, with, you know, the, the mysteries of virology. And these will all be, you know, uh, historical, you know, fascinations. But for right now, boy, we really are struggling. You guys hear that in the background? <laughs> we do. That's the New York City 7 p.m. salute to healthcare workers. Uh, how wonderful. Pretty amazing. It's the best part of the day. Oh, open your window then. Let's hear it. Yes. And every day on that corner on 77th and Lexington, somebody, a restaurant or an entertainer or somebody does something new and special for all the frontline workers. Very amazing. Fading away now. That's very touching. That's amazing. Brenda, what do you think is going to be your view of New York City going forward? How are you going to be dealing with the emotional backlash, the uh, the feeling that, well, you you knew a lot of people and you, you talked to a restaurateur or a, or a waiter and chances are they knew somebody who was hit by COVID. How is this going to affect the city? So I lived uh, in New York through 9-11. 9-11, you knew somebody who knew somebody who may have known somebody. Here, every one of us is going to be directly affected. Um, everybody's going to know somebody. Everybody's going to have lost somebody that was close to them or in their life directly. The psychological effects of that morning, coupled with the unknown of this, because we got to start living again, right? We got, we have to get, force ourselves out there. I don't know how that's going to happen. So why are all my buddies calling me all the time, asking me if we're going to have a, a football season? Part of it is they're looking for normalcy. But part of it is they're looking for some science, some insight. The question they should be asking is how are we going to have any sporting event season? They want to know what we think scientifically how it can happen. And I think emotionally, you guys, you guys hit the nail on the head, not just for our frontline workers, but for all of us. I mean, we just went through something we haven't been through in a hundred years as a country. That doesn't just go away. I mean, it sinks in and it takes time for you to process it and organize it and, and deal with it. And it's so global. You know, it's like you want to escape. Where are you going to go? The moon is the only place you can go, right? right? I mean, there's nowhere on this planet where you've really escaped this. Well, quite a, quite a change. Dr. Singh, as we open up society, but especially in New York City, I just need to get your perspective about schools, elementary schools through high school. How do you deal with what has always been a bit of a, a, a viral party in elementary schools where it's all brought home to your parents? How do you deal with opening up those schools again in New York City? I'll answer your question by saying it shouldn't just be about schools. It should be about how we're going to actually re-engage in every aspect of our lives. The days of me going to my pediatrician, taking my kids for a preschool clearance, sitting in a room of 30 other kids in a Petri dish, waiting to see that, that's over. So I think we, we have to relook at every single mass congregation thing that we have in society. And we have to look at them differently. You know, we have to look at schools 
And how are we going to socially distance those kids? How are we going to monitor those kids, right? Uh, how am I looking at my own offices? My office, we took half of the exam chairs out of the exam rooms, okay, the, in the waiting area. So, okay, everybody's socially distanced. We put plexiglass up there. If you're in a community that the office is as a parking lot, don't wait in the doctor's office. Even if the doctor tells you to wait in the doctor's office, say, here's my cell phone, I'll be right outside my car, perfectly isolated, and when you need to call me, I'm not stepping to sign in with this pen that's been signed in by 800 other people and it's never been wiped down. You're gonna, we're gonna do all that electronically before I come in there. I'm gonna wait in my car, you're gonna call me, I'm gonna walk right through, I'm gonna go do what I need to do, and I'm out of there. We're giving care with minimal exposure. That's the balance of everything going forward. Education, it's the same thing. They have to educate with minimal exposure. I agree with you. I think early on during this process, the way we're going to get back into the community is by doing it slowly, by distancing, continuing to distance, continuing to be cautious. But I'm not sure that this warrants us being socially distanced forever. Well, at least until we have a, a safe vaccine. I mean, for the next That's year it. and a half or two clearly, years. Clearly. That's for, the, for, for this virus, you need to make sure that there is absolute safety. Yeah. But going forward long term, we're, we're going to be social beings. We're going to get back to life eventually, but not prematurely. I agree 100%. Once we have a vaccine, truly some sort of preventative or a treatment that's very effective that once you've got, you know, God forbid you get COVID, we give you the silver bullet and it cures you. It also re reduces the gravity of, of this particular infection. Yeah, but I kind of feel like we're at mile five on a, in a 26-mile marathon. Exactly right. It, we, we really shouldn't be looking at the finish line yet. We're not there yet. We're a long way away, right? Yeah, look, I, I, I love living in New York City. I love it. I'm a New Yorker through and through. I'm a jaded New Yorker. I hate it, and I love it. And what do I love about it? It's the energy. What's the energy? It's all these people that love it the same way. The restaurant scene, walking Central Park, and that's density. It is. And density is our enemy when you're dealing with a virus. So it's going to be so interesting to see how New York comes back. And then there's the, you know, the human factor. Some people are going to play the percentages, and they're going to be like, ah, I got to live my life. Let's go out there. And then there's going to be a group that's going to be like, I can't function knowing that I could get it out there. Under these circumstances, at what point is a procedure considered somewhat elective or not, like a stress test? If in a normal world, if you would send a patient to get a stress test and find out how they were doing, is that something we should keep doing right now if it's not an emergency? In New York State, you can't. In New York City, you cannot, right? You're still under a governor's decree that no elective procedures. So the only thing that we've actually opened up to do is what we call level three procedures. They're defined as urgent procedures. If you were having a heart attack in the three, four weeks ago during the COVID crisis, and you walked into the Lenox Hill emergency room, we treated you just like we did before the COVID. And now we're starting to get our teams back, although not at full strength. So we can start to do the urgent cases. If you needed a hip replacement because you're having chronic pain, that's an elective procedure. There's nothing urgent about that. You're doing it for your comfort. It's necessary. It's worthwhile. But 
you need to wait because the risks versus benefits uh, are certainly outweigh doing that procedure at this time. If it's not risking life and limb to delay, then you should delay it. I'll tell you this. We determined obstetrics is not elective. A woman in her 20th <laughs> week of pregnancy gets seen, right? A woman in her 40th week of pregnancy, we made a determination. There's that what Steve was saying. It used to be emergent versus elective. No, there's a whole spectrum in there. And obstetrics is not elective. And people would say, well, this woman's doing fine. She's with child and we need to continue to monitor and continue their medical care. As we bring this show to a close, what is your prediction for how your field is going to go over the next, oh, let's say six months, nine months, um, as we open things up. How do you think it's going to go for the COVID situation as well as your issue of people who are handling or not handling something that could be critical for them uh, at a time where you really want to consider avoiding doctors and hospitals and that pen at the drugstore that they make you sign the, the sheet with? I think from a COVID standpoint, it's widely reported. Our governor, who's done a great job with his um, with his press conferences, if you look at the rates on our plateau, they were going down until the last two days. You see the uptick. So I believe that as we allow people to be out more, as the weather is better, we are going to have a reemergence of some more COVID cases. Right? I I think yeah, I agree with you 100. percent We are com- we're not ready yet. We are we're not ready to open yet. We are prepared. And I get it. You have to open. People's livelihoods, people's sanity is going up in smoke right now. So, but you have to be prepared to accept what's coming, which is going to be a reemergence of this. How bad it is, I tell you one thing, we're going to be able to handle a lot better, right, Steve? We are going to be able to test a lot better. We're going to be able to quarantine a lot better. We're going to be able to source a lot better. We're slowly getting ahead of it. We were caught flat-footed, you know, back in January, February. But now we are prepared. We know what to expect. Um, So, no, I agree. We we can handle the surge better than we could initially. But I would not want us to be cavalier about this notion that, you know, because we understand it better and we don't understand that much, but at least because we understand what we need to do during the surge to help protect everybody, that we should feel that we can be cavalier about opening uh, at this juncture. A huge reemergence a surge, reemergence, whatever the nomenclature is, is going to be devastating on multiple levels, economically, psychologically, healthcare, every level. So we have to be very, very careful. That's my worry. That's your worry, right? We let everybody out and everybody's happy for a week and then we're miserable again for three months. And history has shown that. If you look back at the Spanish flu, 1918, they were complaining about the same things that we're complaining about. We don't like the mask. It's too uncomfortable. Livelihoods are suffering because we're being sequestered. And the second surge was deadlier than the first. We're going to have to watch this closely. Uh, we're going to have to pray for our family and friends. We're going to pray a lot for guys like you who are on the front lines that are taking care of us in this tough time. Dr. Varinda Singh and Dr. Stephen Tabak, thank you for coming in and Zooming with us today. I hope that, Dr. Singh, you'll come back and join us again. This was a wonderful and dynamic way to learn some tough things that we all need to know. Thank you again. This is medicine we're still practicing. Have a good day. 
If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.